Those who advise us to move on, let it go, and forgive because they have are full of shit. My name is Andrea and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child, where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear, dear shit shows. My dear, medium, ugly shit shows. Only medium, ugly folks around here. So merch alert, merch alert, merch alert, y'all. We have new merch. We have uh, medium ugly merch, and we have I sell forbidden books in a dingy shop that disappears merch. This is limited time offer for the next two weeks. Uh, go get your medium ugly shit. Go get your uh, dingy bookshop that disappears merch, and uh, go check the show notes for the link. I really should get the address of the guy that made the dingy bookstore comment so I can so I can send him a coffee mug or something. If you have no idea what I'm talking about right now, just go listen to last week's episode at the very, very beginning. Uh, So today we are diving deep with Patrick Tian. You are in for a treat. So he is a a social worker. He uh, has an amazing YouTube channel, an amazing Instagram. I'm sure many of y'all probably already follow him. And he's a recovering shit show just like us. So... This is a really good conversation. We had very good chemistry. So one of the things that I asked him about was complex PTSD versus ADHD. I had had come across one of his uh, videos on it. So I shared at the end of last week's episode that I was getting an an ADHD assessment the next day. Uh, So I have been sharing with y'all about my issues with uh, with with Candy Crush, right? <laughs> like my Candy Crush addiction. Uh, I googled Candy Crush addiction, and the articles that I found uh, made me realize, like, thank God I am I'm not that bad. Let me read you this quote from this one article. Uh, I mean, this is a this is a serious problem. This this Candy Crushing. Uh, Jenny says her addiction is beginning to affect family life. Housework has gone to pot. I've even been late picking up my 10-year-old from school because I've been stuck on a level. I've burnt countless dinners and let vegetables boil dry because I've been engrossed. In extreme cases of candy crush addiction, you may even experience a severe physical injury. For example, this 29-year-old Candy Crush addict experienced chronic left thumb pain and loss of active motion from playing Candy Crush too much. He had to undergo surgery to prepare his thumb. <laughs> God, you guys, I, I haven't had to have um, thumb surgery or, um, you know, I haven't, I haven't burned any dinners yet. So God, I mean, I thought I was really up there, but I guess there's a there's a much farther bottom that I could go down with this thing. <sighs> uh, so I've been, yes, yeah, so I've been sharing about my, um, the Candy Crush thing and the, the procrastination and the, you know, the self-sabotage type stuff. I've been struggling with this for several, several years now. 
And I really just thought it was just shit that I hadn't healed yet. Like these deep, you know, wounds that I'm not worthy. Um, I'm inherently flawed. And then in a way I would kind of beat myself up about it. Like you should be further along in your recovery journey. But I never really considered that um, it could be an actual chemical thing, like an actual brain thing. And so um, a few months ago, I had on John Connolly. So he was the rapid resolution therapy guy who, um, the guy who was like the detective or helped detectives solve murder cases. It was a really interesting conversation. But so he mentioned he has a group on uh, Monday nights. It's called Solution. So anyone can come. It's on Zoom. And basically, you know, you just raise your hand and then you, you know, ask him, you pick a problem. You know, you ask him a question or tell him a, a problem that you're facing. And then, you know, within, I don't know, five to 10, 15 minutes, he gives you, he gives you a solution. And so I, I went to it and I brought up the, the gaming, the Candy Crush shit. And I was really disappointed, like underwhelmed uh, about his solution for me, like what he told me. And he essentially was like, do you realize that they design these games to be addictive? And I'm like, yeah, like I do. Like no shit. I'm aware of that. And uh, he was like, well, maybe that, you know, you should look into that more. So I was a little bit disappointed, but it planted a seed. It planted a seed because I went back and I had read this book, I don't know, a few years ago. It's called Irresistible. It's about kind of like technology addiction. And so I went, uh, I, I started reading that again. And so that sort of led me down this rabbit hole to learn more about like dopamine and ADHD. Um, I wasn't well versed in, you know, all the different symptoms and what it looks like. And so then I was looking at other symptoms and realized that those were applicable to me too, like uh, losing things all the time, walking into rooms and not remembering why I walked in there, disorganized, time management, underestimating how long things are going to take me. And so I had the, uh, the assessment on Wednesday, last Wednesday, and she diagnosed me with uh, mild ADHD. And so I've shared about my, my work history and how I kind of sabotaged myself like into this podcast. Just being unable to work like my the last job I had. I was a horrible employee and I didn't want to be that way, but I just could not get myself to actually do my job. I didn't feel like I was being, you know, an employee in integrity. And so I just kind of chalked it up to be, uh, I just, if I don't give a shit or if I'm not interested in something, I can't get myself to do it. And she said, that's ADHD. That's not giving me the dopamine hit that, um, that I need. And so it's literally impossible for me to do that. So that kind of took some of the, the shame away from me. We were also talking about my childhood and I've shared about my struggles in writing as a kid and just being completely incapable of like forming a sentence and just spinning my wheels and spinning my wheels. And and also in art, that was the case. Like I could never finish my art projects. And so it's like the things 
like the writing and the art. It's like the things that were, I don't know if abstract is the right like word, but where there's not a like definitive answer, like a math problem or a multiple choice problem, or even just like a history question. But when it's kind of this like open-ended sort of thing, uh, I, I struggle. ADHD, I don't know if it's PTSD, I don't know if it's phone addiction, I don't know if it's all three of those, but I'm not living in my full potential. And let's get this shit figured out, y'all. Like, let's get this shit figured out. I'm going to see a psychiatrist at the end of the month, and um, I'm going to look and find a therapist or a coach, like an ADHD coach. So I will continue to update you on this journey. And thank you for allowing me this space to to share with all y'all shit shows. So let's get the damn show on the road. Oh, on that one more thing. So I'm going to get somebody to come on the pod to talk specifically about uh, ADHD. So if anybody has any recommendations, um, let a gal know, okay? Uh, now let's get up the show on the road. But first, I want to give a shout out to all my newest shit show, medium ugly Patreon peeps. This is where medium ugly shit show party peeps get together and uh, and heal and grow and have a little fun doing so. This is the place to be. So thank you, thank you, thank you to these fine ass shit shows. Trish, Jen, I love sharks 83. <laughs> uh, Ashley Patton, crazy for Colorado. Lisa, Alexandra, uh, Kay, Abby, Rick, Gwen, and Joy. Thank you, shit shows. How about the rest of y'all go follow suit again? This is relational trauma. You need to have healthy relationships to heal. Patreon.com slash adult child. Uh, next, give me a follow on Insta, on TikTok. And last but not least, give me a damn five-star rating, folks. On Apple, on Spotify, it is required. It is required, okay? Thank you. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Well, it is my pleasure to introduce... A so I call myself a recovering shit show, and I'm gonna call you one as well. <laughs> I, I have a feeling that you'll take that Good. as a badge of honor. Bad, so yep. we have a licensed independent clinical social worker, recovering shit show, Patrick Tehan. He has YouTube, he has Instagram, he has everything. You really put a lot of good shit out there. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I love the term shit show. I um, I tell clients that I just like when I tell my story, I just kind of say I I, I kind of stumbled into therapy just feral. Yeah, just, how do you use that term. Like, <laughs> it's like kind of like a fucked up alley cat with a job, you know? Like, <laughs> well, I sell merch that says "recovering shit show" and "former shit show." Great. So, um, okay, 
So you and I, I think have similar backgrounds. Mm -hmm. Uh, Before we talk about your childhood, I want you Mm -hmm. to tell me about like, what was your bottom? Not necessarily um, addiction, Mm -hmm. but like childhood like trauma like adult child i know i'm obviously familiar with the term like you're aca what was your what was your aha moment when you came to terms with like truly how much your childhood fucked you up yeah it's a great question because there are different types of bottoms and if you identify as like you know substance abuse and cptsd there are um there's this, what I'm, fa- I love the question because I'm fascinated how people have these experiences, like say with an ex three years before they broke up with them, where their body was like, oh, you're, you're totally not safe for me. Like we have this awareness, we have the compass, we have the intuition, mm-hmm. but we're not in our body enough to take action on it. Mm-hmm. And that moment for me was, I was, I was, um, how old was I? I was everything started at, at 19 years old in terms of recovery. And the bottom was my dad had passed away in November of 95. And then in the summer of 96, in between my dad's passing, my mother's alcoholism shot up. Like if you look at the bar graph, when they talk about it being a progression of disease <laughs> is Not my so mother was, <laughs> you know, she just lost this kind of trauma bond relationship mm-hmm. with a narcissist um her alcoholism skyrocketed her she was like six months behind in her mortgage the house was foreclosed upon eventually but during the summer um it's like she turned against us her kids Mm. and there was there was another gross alcoholic drinking buddy in her life to you know there was always that in my life and it was just we just had this moment with her where she was just hitting a bottom, you know, my, she's never woken up from her bottoms or anything like that, but it was just, it had just gone off the rail so much that it was actually a gift. And I'll never forget this moment of like, like she was blitzed in like a two or three day bender and just saying awful things to us that I'll talk about in detail in, in a book that's coming up. Um, and it, that was just that moment that there was just like, there was just every cell in my body was like, it's time to go. There's nothing here for you. There's just, you have to just move out and just get away from this. And there wasn't much more recovery. I wasn't in, I wasn't go, seeing anybody. I just had bandmates and friends and a girlfriend at the time. There was no therapist. There was nothing. And then that summer, so just, you know, just, you just remember really shitty summers in your life. Do you know what I mean? Like those, like, oh, summer 97 and that freshman year, but you know <laughs> what I mean? like you just like really dark stuff. Mm-hmm. That was the bottom. Mm. And shortly after that, I talk about this. It's like, you know, it's another, uh, it's a deeply personal loss. And just like the, how I think the world has just a weird kind of sense of humor there was this look this i waited tables at this fish restaurant (laughs) in boston and i was just like this mascot young orphan kid 90s i had like long like fabio red hair you know like (laughs) i was playing in a band but i was so feral too and we were all partying and stuff like that but there's a lot of people in that restaurant this is around i was working at that restaurant that summer and in the fall there was just you know 
there was a guy there that he was funny. He was struggling with substances too, but he was in therapy seeing my mentor, but he was also doing stuff like breath workshops. Mm-hmm. People think like the holistic world is kind of brand new, like people doing Reiki or people doing like breath work or people doing somatic stuff. You know what I mean? There's like, it feels like a revolution, but there's, it's, it's going to go away. And then 10 years later, there'll be another revolution again. So many people were going to this place called Kripalu in Massachusetts. So he would go out there and do these breath workshops with his girlfriend. And he was a safe person to me. Like we could relate about our families. And he, I was just probably dissociated and hung over. And he was like, what's, you know, what's, what's going on with you? You Okay. And it was the first time I ever related to this bottom as the first time I ever related to somebody or opened up to them. And I said, well, I just feel like there's always something wrong with me. Mm. My relationships don't last longer than six weeks because I'm such a mess. Like I was a very needy, you know what I mean? I was really looking for a mom and I was 19. If a, you're a 20 year old girl, not, you know what I mean? Like they just couldn't, you know, they probably thought I was cute, but it was just became too much. Mm-hmm. That's how feral I was. And I just kind of told him everything. And he says, uh, I'm seeing this great therapist. Here's her number. And still dissociated, I just kind of walked over from that table. I remember everything crystal clear to a payphone on the wall. Mm-hmm. And that's when I called my therapist. So that's kind of the story of the bottom of this two-month period. of, And all of it is just kind of miraculous the way everything kind of played out. I just want to say that I love when you say feral because your Boston accent really comes out when you say feral. Feral. <laughs> you don't feral, really like I much. Kick. Yeah. What the hell? You yeah. just said you just left like a year and a half ago. Why don't you have a thicker accent? Um, my I don't know. I really don't know because I was immersed in that accent, but I never really even had it as a kid. I think it was almost like this canceling out. Both my parents were... Irish immigrants. I'm a first generation, you know, mm-hmm. so it's, they had these in, Irish accents at home. And then, you know, the, the, you know, classic Boston suburban, Hey, what's going on guy? How you doing? Scott? You know, like all that. <laughs> um, we would just, you know, say that stuff and I can mimic the accent, but for some reason I just left the world without, <laughs> without it, but it does pop up once in a while. Yeah, I'm into it. I'm going to try to get you to say feral as many times as possible. <laughs> um, or I'll just say EMDR. 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 So my experience is, um, so I I hit my like complex PTSD adult child bottom at nine years sober. Um, and it was like after dating like the past nine years of just being in toxic relationships and not realizing that I was living in a fucking trauma response every time I was in a relationship. And my bottom was I dated two alcoholics named Brian back to back. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's when I realized what the hell was going on with me. My, I think that your childhood um, was probably like more like blatantly dysfunctional. I mean, I had, um, so I, my mom was an alcoholic. My dad was, you know, emotionally unavailable workaholic. Um, but then at age 12 is when I started to act out. And so then from like 12 to 19, I became the focus of the family in and out of rehabs, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and it really worked in saving the family. 
Like my mom stopped drinking and my parents stopped fighting as much, you know? Wow. It really worked. And then as soon as I got sober, they picked up right where they left off. But like, I knew that my mom was like, I was told my mom was an alcoholic when I was seven and I was like very parentified. I was an only child. Who told you? My mom, we were out to dinner and I could tell something was upset. And, um, I was like, what's wrong? She said, I'm an alcoholic. And I said, well, what does that mean? She says, um, it means I can't drink. And it was like, it was like, I didn't know what that meant, but like, I knew exactly what it meant. Mm -hmm. And just like from that day on, like I, I developed like a sixth sense, like as it related to my mom's drinking and I could feel it, you know, like hours before she would pick up a drink. And, um, my dad, like her alcoholism was a secret from the rest of the world. So like, Mm. you know, I remember being eight years old and helping him search the house for booze or like going into the liquor cabinet and like taking a paint stick and like measuring it and monitoring, um, every bottle. And for me, it was like exciting. Like that was like my first addiction. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, but I just thought that like, Yeah, I knew it was like less than ideal, but like I was never physically or sexually abused. You know, like I went to private school. Like we had, like I had no fucking clue that it was trauma. Like no clue. Yeah. But it sounds like your your uh, your upbringing was like a little bit more violent, (laughs) probably. You want to talk about like growing up? Like when did you first realize that like something was off, or did you always know? I, I think I might've, it's, I don't, I don't know. It's, (laughs) it's almost not trying to be funny. It's, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like knowing you're driving in a blackout. Mm. How many siblings do you have? What's that? How many siblings? Just one. Just one. Older or younger? A little bit older. We started off as three. So there was a death in the family. Mm. um at 10 so it's where you know even but but even before that the thing that you know i want to come back to something you said about about your folks um i think that if you had asked me when i was five what the problem is is i would say that my dad is awful Mm. i don't like my dad my dad is mean to my mom you know and there's this kind of story like that's the thing that i knew was abnormal is and this is the 80s where you kind of know that as a kid that you you might get slapped by a dad or something like that or like <laughs> or men are kind of gruff or something like that but there was just i knew from a young age that there was something off about my dad and then that progressed that would you know if i was five that would you know for the next 13 years he was just that oppressive usda narcissistic personality disorder with some weird variations around it in a way that he felt that he was just super powerful person, but he was many, he was really pathetic in many ways. Mm. So it's just, and you know, it's also just being an American kid and having him also be like an immigrant, not really knowing, you know, he's never fully American or, or that kind of dad, like, you know, other dads would play basketball and that kind of a thing. My dad would just be, he would, he would, he was like living as an Irishman in the 60s in the 80s in Boston. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Just like, just weird where he carried a handkerchief. Do you know what I mean? Like he, you know, just like weird. Not that that's super weird, but it's, it's hard to describe. But it's, in other words, like, um, yeah. 
Um, but coming to the U S well, back in the fifties and sixties, even even way before that, it was Ireland, a very underdeveloped kind of country. Now it's just a totally different story, but you know, my mom is one of eight, only one person stayed on the rural farm. Why everyone else, while everyone else went to London, New York, or Boston Mm -hmm. for work for opportunity, there wasn't really much around unless you just wanted to hunker down and be a farmer. Mm-hmm. or you know struggle with some poverty you know there was there was money to be made elsewhere and even my aunt i think i had the story somewhere in my family of someone just flipping a coin between london and boston mm. and then you just there was a sponsor wow. in those cities like a, a cousin who was already there or something like that so they're they're two irish people from the west coast of ireland and they met south of boston in an irish dance around 1969 But coming back to your folks about, you know, this weird dynamic of like you becoming the problem Mm -hmm. is that happens so much in these families when I think about a couple's codependency about staying together and that now we can unify and not look at anything in our marriage or ourselves Mm -hmm. and have our kind of, you know, our, our, the family fuck up 14 year old boy who's acting out or something like that. And it can be, it, there's really a, I, I find I'm not, you know, I find that there's kind of a, a quiet pathology behind all that. Because when you really think for the person to sort of to say, Oh, my kid, you know, they need so much help and I can really change things here and not know that you cause that or not know that you have a hand in that. Or not know that, like you mentioned, dad's a workaholic or, or she's a drinker. And for the two of them, it can't, same thing with my parents, can't be us, can't be that, you know? Well, I didn't even tell you part of it. So then at nine is when I started to develop separation anxiety. So I started to, I woke up in the middle of the night one night, like fucking terrified, like yep. and had to start sleeping in my mom's bed. Yep. And so then they sent me to a therapist and then right. I remember asking my mom years later, did you yeah. ever tell them that you were an alcoholic and that you and dad fought all the time? And her answer was, no, it didn't seem relevant. <laughs> right. You know, like I wasn't, they never, they were so anti-therapy or any anti-help at all, anti-telling the truth. Mm-hmm. But for clients who go through that, for listeners who go through that, that like your experience, mm-hmm. that's a level of mind fuck that's almost like, religious religious abuse Mm -hmm. it's a mind fuck it really is another layer of thing for those kids who end up in therapy and no one's talking about how mom's Mom's a drinker dad's violent dad's shut down dad's dad's maybe closeted do you know what i mean or the and it's like as kids we're not exactly some of us are telling the truth on purpose Mm-hmm. But we're the kid is just the the the, the canary in the coal mine mm-hmm. that I feel like in society we gotta fucking start picking up on that, mm-hmm. you know. But no one, you know, like no one wants to, you know, whether it's school or DSS or whatever, or even the therapist that you saw. Do you know what I mean? It's just kind of like yeah, if, you know, I, I, <laughs> you know, like yeah. If I was doing family therapy, I, I wouldn't really kind of want to. I I have too much countertransference. Mm-hmm. I would I would really really have to really find my ground as a therapist and work with a parent with low insight. That would be very exhausting. Like I I only work with people that are like 
I know I have this thing. I know what happened. I resonate with your videos. You know, I'm not taking anybody right now, but like, that's the person I want to see. Do you know what I mean? I would never take somebody on. That's just like, Chase, you know, my kid doesn't listen to me. And it's just, you know, he's got all these, he's on his phone all the time playing the video games and he's like punching walls. I don't know what's going on. And it's just like, oh, could it be that you're a sex addict? <laughs> I don't know. Could it have something to do about that? You know, <laughs> <laughs> or that you're never home or that you're hypercritical or that you're an asshole or, you know what I mean? Or that, you know, you just, you're just, you're, you're a phony. You're really fake. Definitely not. Definitely the kid. Right. <laughs> so when that death happened of your sibling, did that like really, is that when things, was there a dramatic shift like in your parents after that? Like did drinking really pick up then? Yes and no. I mean, by the time he was 10, I was six. The middle mm -hmm. sibling was eight. Mm -hmm. But by that time, there had already been a domestic violence was like there'd be cops at the house maybe like once every six months, once every three months. There was, you know, and you don't, I, I've heard this from other people involved in, you know, wrapped up with my family or family members over time where when you're six, but even before my brother's passing, you know, developmentally, you're kind of in a bubble. You're not really unaware of things. You just might know you don't really feel good, but like my my mom, we we hated being around our dad, and sometimes we would have to like you know, you know. I I remember nights where he would just be watching a hockey game, and we would just be like you know, we would be calling the bar, asking mom to come home, yeah. and he would take the phone off the hook, kind of stuff. So it's like that kind of existence was even going on before then. It wasn't. It just things really got worse. You know what I mean? Like where. And despite who my parents are, like, you know, losing a child is like, that is the one mission in life, I think, if you're a parent, is to pass away before your child does. Like, that's, you know, so I, I you know, don't ever sort of blame them for those feelings or whatever. But after that, the alcoholism kind of took off, more neglect, more shutdown, because they were, you know, they were in a trauma response too or whatever. But not much was really new. It just was just worse, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So it's just, you know, but for the childhood trauma piece about it was no one was talking to the kids or me about it. You know, like no one, no one was saying, let's get you a therapist or whatever. It was just like, yes. And then it was also more about mom going into this now. Now she had full license to drink. You know what I mean by that? Like now, like you've probably seen that in the halls. It's just like, well, my best friend died of an overdose. So I'm just going to fucking off myself for the next 10 years. I have, you know what I mean? Like the world is, you know, God's dead to me. You know, the world has wronged me. I can do this. Um, but it's such a, it's such an alcoholic thought. It's such a substance abuse oriented kind of thought. Is she still alive? Yes. Yeah. Yep. And I, I wish her well. I, you know, I'm just not in contact with her. And it's just sort of like, it's just um, where with going no contact, you do all this work and you do all this changing. And then if you were going to re reconnect with them, they haven't. Mm -hmm. They're still back at that conversation they had with you 12 or 15 years ago, which is why I say that is for many survivors is we, you know, there might be the part of our inner child that might be like, well, maybe, maybe things are different. 
Yeah, that fantasy, of course. Mm -hmm. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah, I agree. You know, I've gotten to a place where like, there's been times in my healing where I've like cut contact, but I'm at a place now like where I figured out how how to have a relationship with them that like, you know, works for me. Very limited. Yeah, going going no contact is not for everybody. So many people, you know, I, I get a lot of nasty comments from parents about like you're tearing families apart or that kind of a thing. It's just, but it's just sort of, it's, it's only when. For some people, it's absolutely necessary. Yeah. Or it really, it prevents you from healing because you just don't get a reprieve absolutely. from any of the, of the abuse or the drama or stuff like that. But many, many survivors can tolerate a superficial, okay-ish enough relationship with parents <clears throat> and make that work. It's still hard, but it's possible, you know? Yeah. Okay, let's let's talk some about complex PTSD versus ADHD. So I just got an assessment on Wednesday. The way it's showing up for me is like in procrastination and like self-sabotage and just like so like being on my phone constantly, um, not being able to get those big ticket items, like moving, like the stuff that's really going to like move my life forward in an impactful way. Um, there's been some other things, but I would love to talk with you about that. I was watching one video. That's great. I didn't get to watch the whole thing, but mm-hmm. just start wherever the hell you want to start. Sure. Yeah. And I think that that video is long and involved to get into but i'm really not an expert in adhd i just really wanted to kind of give some just additional pieces to it that it could be cptsd i think i started that video talking about being feral at the time when i started meaning overwhelmed with how to write a check because i wasn't really parented around that really um struggling with shame and anxiety that if I asked where the laundromat in the new neighborhood that I lived in, I'd be like, okay, okay. And not taking what the person's saying. And, you know, it's just, I think that I almost look at ADHD sometimes. It's really kind of a thing. Some kids are just born with it. It doesn't mean that there's bad parenting going on. There's just some organic tendencies, some genetic tendencies, perfectly fine. But where the lens gets opaque with CPTSD is around the issue of not fully being in our body, Mm. I think. And I think what is then the piece that I think, well, why? Why are we not fully in our body? Is I think that there is a lack of processing, like things like losing my brother, things like that summer with my mother. There's just a backlog of these really big things that kind of run us. It's a little bit tricky to explain, but... When we get triggered, we go on a third date with somebody, we really, really like them. And then they're just like, you know, you're great, but I don't think that this is for me. I'll see you later. You know? And that came from out of the blue. And we yeah, you want to fucking like, kill yourself. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like you've, you've gone down to now you're abandoned again, you know, where I think the non-trauma survivor, I don't want to say the normal person, because I don't really know what quite that is. But the non-trauma survivor who doesn't have like deep attachment wounds or, and I want to clarify something that I did grow up in blatant abuse and you grew up in some, when you say that you kind of, it wasn't like that, in many ways it doesn't matter because the symptoms are the same. Oh, absolutely. And what I like to say is like, 
it's not really so much about like what happened to us versus like what we came to believe about ourselves and the world as a result of what happened to us. Exactly. Good way to put that, you know, because just even having a dad who's workaholic and he's out of there is enough mm-hmm. to mess with our self-worth, to mess with how much do we hold somebody accountable, mm-hmm. you know, and your mom telling you that she's an alcoholic at seven and then to have the drinking continue after that is another le- level of, you know what I mean? Like then, it's almost, yeah, because it's like I have a real problem, but it's not real, mm-hmm. you know? So there's a lot of what? There's a lot of, so for me, when I started to do some heavy duty trauma work and the group work that I did with my mentor, we were doing rage work as a group. We were doing empty chair work and finishing business with parents and really holding them up. We were struggling with our inner child's belief around, do people really want to hear from me or not? Is it okay to show up for people? It was it was very intimate. And I think that that's what kind of helped me come back to my body enough. In the short amount of time, I graduated high school in 95 and I barely graduated for smoking pot every day and not going and really going to a hopeless part of my life because my dad was a was he was getting more ill but I don't I don't want to sound like a monster but that was like he was such an abusive person is like when is this going to happen this has gone on he had cancer for 10 years so there was this I really wasn't doing well senior year in high school that was 95 um Started to get a little bit sober, got into therapy, was doing group therapy. A little bit sober. <laughs> What's that? A little bit sober. <laughs> a little bit sober. Well, it was like I, the therapist was like, whoa, you can't be in this group if you're coming in hungover on a Tuesday. And I was like, oh, I, I don't want to go to AA. I'll just stop and I'll show you. And I stopped for like a, you know, so it was like white knuckling replacing the therapy sober. with sobriety. But it is a funny term. It's kind of sober ish on my way. Um, and then from 95 to 98, she got me to go to college. And in college, I got a 4.0. That's a very different experience from being feral to not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and the, the sobriety that I had, I was still not, you know, showing up 45 minutes late to my waiting tables gig and getting in trouble or getting pink slips or, you know what I mean, or that kind of a thing. So it's just... I have this weird theory that if we drain the well of everything that happened to us, I think our focus gets better. I think we're back in our body in that way, you know? And what was helpful for me was also working with the inner child around, um, okay, it's time to quit smoking. We're going to really try to commit. We're going to just have three cigarettes today. And that level of inner child dialoguing work, which you're kind of journaling on paper, to do that was very helpful in a way of getting our adult in place. So if you're kind of like, you know, first of all, like we're all addicted to our phone. I was on TikTok for an hour last night when I only needed to be on it for 30 seconds. Do you know what I mean? We're all. It's so weird that I don't get pulled into social media. It's like fucking candy crush. (laughs) Then in a way, like, yes, you could look at that as ADHD, but I, you could also look at it as, the inner child not having any healthy limit setting mm-hmm. from the inner adult. Mm-hmm. And I'm not, I don't mean to say like the inner child and the inner adult is the only way to do therapy. It's yeah. I, don't, I don't mean to say it like, yeah, I know. but it's just kind of helpful in that way 
to start a relationship with this this part of ourselves. But that literally looks like being a real parent. We're only, you know, I just went through this week with my son. We just, we revamped my son's screen time because he didn't know he was doing this. He spent a bunch of money on a website contributing to a gamer. Like it's almost like a Patreon kind of a thing. And I don't even want to say like how much money he spent. And he thought he was just subscribing or supporting them with stars or or things. And he just spent a whole bunch of money. Like where you're and, watching them play games. Yeah. They're watching them play like Zelda breath of the wild. And you know what I mean? They're just like, these people are really good at it. Like that's their gig, you know? Yeah, yeah. And you know, they, that's how they make money. And it's really cool. But my son didn't know that he was like mm-hmm. tipping them because his, uh-huh. His Hotmail account is attached to my PayPal kind of a thing. So we gave him that freedom. But it's every every moment is a parenting moment. And we we just as a family really looked at um, our screen time with him. And then we we went went down from, say, like three to four hours a day to an hour and a half. And in the in the meantime, he's picked up guitar. Nice. Do you know what I mean? Like he's doing other things. It's actually been a really good experience so far. But I didn't grow up with that kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Like I was just neglected. I was smoking parliaments at 11. You know what I mean? Like I, you know, in, in high school, my diet was like fucking peach, snapple and parliament lights. And you know what I mean? And like a lot of weed and not ever being home for two or three days, you know? So I think that for the trauma survivor who kind of grew up in this, I grew up in an anything goes kind of environment. Mm Mm-hmm very hard to break through and become a parent for ourselves and Mm -hmm. not still live like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm 46 years old and it's, I'm just now in my life getting to bed at a decent time. Mm -hmm. And I've been in recovery since I was 20. That's a long time. Yeah, that is. Okay. It's a long time or realizing at 46 that too much sugar doesn't make me feel good or look good. Yeah. That's the worst. (laughs) It's the worst when you realize that shit. (laughs) You know what? I'm 5'11 and I was this height at, like 12 and i always say thank god oh. i started smoking at 12 or i would have been seven foot one wow know? okay well there's a pop there's a plus absolutely <laughs> <laughs> um so i want to talk about rrp so that's what recover relationship recovery program is right that kind of the recovery model that you yes. use yep i've looked into it some but i'd love to like get into it more it sounds like in a nutshell yep. it's kind of a, a two a two-part dealio yep focuses have at it. It's um, we tweak the name. It's relationship recovery process. Process. And it has two major goals. One is finishing business with our parents or our toxic family system of origin, and the other goal is to reclaim intimacy. And that it's really a group therapy model. Is it kind of like psychodrama? It's a bunch of stuff. It's inner child work, psychodrama, group therapy, experiential work. So in that, you know, the therapist is forming groups. You can do it in individual, but it only kind of goes so far because you you don't get the witnessing that other group members can provide for you. You don't get a sense of like a like a healthy surrogate family mm-hmm. alone, just one on one with the therapist. Um, and some people are not wired for groups. Some people are really, you know, like, Ugh, you know, like, but our first group is our family. And that's where I think that kind of like, I don't want to kind of, you know, but humans are humans too. When they told me I needed to go to AA, I was like, ah, well, you know, like no church basement with those losers. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> No, thanks. I'm too cool for school. Um, 
finishing business with mom and dad, reclaiming intimacy. So, so let's talk about finishing business with mom and dad. Yep. Um, I tell people to use the group as a long process to figure out whether your parents were right about you or not. Mm. Whether that's direct messages or the secret messages. So when my mother wouldn't come home for a couple of days or not even say goodbye because she didn't want to get into it about how long she'd be gone. And then I would wait on a weekend. I remember this pink, like these pink couches, chair things in our living room. And on a rainy day, I remember I would spend probably from like 8 a.m. to about 5 p.m. looking out the window waiting for her. That's a kid dissociating. That's a kid getting into magical thinking. I would probably be terrified that she was out there drinking and driving. Very attached to my mother. It's not my, my dad was horrific, but my mom was my world. So finishing business in that way is really holding the parent accountable in therapy, not with the parent because they're not going to they're not going to be a good resource for you to take that <laughs> in. <say> so. <laughs> and writing the parent letters and having the group witness that, doing empty chair work where you put the parent into the chair and tell them the truth, mm-hmm. have the therapist talk to the person in, you know, in um doing a genogram and telling your family story in front of people. An experiential is you, you're experiencing the trauma that you went through, but having a different outcome. So a client might, another group member might play someone's violent dad and say the things that dad would say and have the energy with that. Which you're going to get a beating and I can't believe you did this. Like you left your bike out in the lawn kind of a thing and all of that frenetic violent energy. It's not for everybody. It sounds crazy. You know, I, you know when I'm going to, I'm in the process of writing a book about it and I just picture in my mind, I don't really care about critics, but I do picture a lot of therapists going like, that's fucking bananas. You would just, you know, like trigger the client that much. Yes. You would bring the client back to that experience, but then have a different outcome. And the different outcome is someone arrests the dad. Mm-hmm. A therapist comes in and tells you that leaving the bike on the lawn was a normal thing for a kid to do. Mm-hmm. Do you think your dad is right about you? Do you know what I mean? Where's your mom in this? Why isn't mom around protecting you? You know, it's sort of psychodrama, but really recreating what did you need when you were eight? Like if it was in your case, uh, not to make this super intimate for you, but when you're, yeah. and I, it's a very common adult child thing to be watching the clock, watching the amount of booze go down and measuring how much they're drinking. And you're really in this, there's a lot of drama and excitement, but there's, you know, the the kid going through that needed a rescue and needed help going that mom is an alcoholic. You don't, you can't, you didn't cause it, control it, can't cure it. And I'm mad that dad isn't more real about it. Like that's finishing business, mm-hmm. you know? Because, but it's such a big barrier because I'm sure even as the listener, I'm a mind reader, I'm sure the listener is thinking, yeah, but my parents are going to get it even if I do all that stuff. Yeah, but that's not what it's about. That's not the point, but that's where our inner child goes. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm still not going to be able to explain that. Mm. But wouldn't it be amazing if your inner child knows that you were a good kid and it was just bananas what was going around on you? Wouldn't your inner child benefit from knowing that unavailable people are kind of shitty? 
you know, it's not anything that you're not sparkly enough or thoughtful enough or all of that stuff, finishing business. It's a big umbrella term that all the activities, RRP is very heavy on activities, which is a good thing. It's not like you're not just sitting around in a group for six months waiting for someone to get it. You know what I mean? You're just, you're <laughs> doing these processes. Um, well, I need to call it taking care <clears throat> of business just so we can sing the song. Yeah, I know. <laughs> every day um and working overtime work it yeah. out <laughs> <laughs> so it's really you know it and then at the end of that process you know ideally the client knows that they were a good kid it was all bananas and that they don't really care anymore what mom thinks about you you know they don't you, you know when the client wants to open up a cupcake store and live and become a baker and live that dream they're like, fuck what my mom thinks. Mm -hmm. My mom doesn't even know me. My mom just saw me as a role for her. You know, my mom just was like, don't do that. You're going to die. You know, I think of that Adam Sandler thing. Like, everyone's going to laugh at you. You know, like the doomish mom or the doomish parent, you know, and it's just it's very freeing. One thing that's been hard for me a lot of the times is like because I was not like directly told certain things. It was so much more insidious. Yeah been like kind of hard to like identify kind of what some of the beliefs are but I had this moment a couple months ago where I've been trying to connect with my inner child more and um you know I had, I was journaling her and I was asking her how she felt about like my procrastination and when I say I'm gonna do something and I don't do it the next day and then it came to me and she told me that when I make promises that I'm not going to like play games the next day, or I'm going to get certain things done and I don't, that it feels the same way as when my mom would tell me that she was going to stop drinking and she wouldn't. Yep. Right. You get it. It's like that habitual disappointment. Here's my cat Kiki. Yep. She has a little nubby cat. <laughs> <laughs> that is so insightful and bright for you to know that is golden. For you to know how your present is being run by your past in that way. And inner child work is another part of that finishing business is, this is complicated to articulate, but when, when the kid has broken promises, it's like their heart gets broken. <coughs> gets broken. Then we grow up into an adult that doesn't really trust anybody or even trust ourselves. So the inner child can be this caustic en entity. You know what I mean? Like you get you get the cake at work and they're like, happy birthday, Andrea. You know, and you're just like, you guys are full of shit. You know what I mean? You know, you know, this is all bullshit. You know, like that might be a feeling on the inside or something like that. I used to go to this AA meeting and when they would hand out the chips, they would sing happy birthday. And I was like the only girl in the room was like, this is so lame. <laughs> right. Right. Because our parents were kind of fakers. You know, like a lot of us heard, oh, I would do anything for my kids. I'm not going to be honest and stop drinking and, you know, stop putting them in dangerous situations, but I would do anything for my kids. So, but also, what's really the unfinished business is that children start to hate themselves when the parent breaks promises. Mm. We start to hate her. Why, you're so stupid. Why did you think she would... You know what I mean? Why did you think she would quit drinking? You're so stupid. You wasted the whole day waiting for your mom to come home. Mm. You know what I mean? What are you, an idiot? Why do kids do that? Is we? It's not a great phrase, but I kind of say we point the gun on ourselves 
because it's too painful to hold our safer. parents accountable. Exactly. Safer, you know, so there's that self-hate, self-critical loop is old. Mm -hmm. So when we don't make the bed or get to bed on time or when we don't pay attention to our checking account and something overdrafts or something like that, it's like there's that, you know, or <clears throat> when we say little Patrick, we're going to quit smoking and, you know, you're full of shit. You know, you know what I mean? He's projecting my parents onto me. So when he when my inner child would say, you're full of shit, you're, you're going to buy a pack of cigarettes, nothing's ever going to change, that kind of a thing. It's like he was really talking to mom. And he wasn't seeing the adult me making effort, which is something my mother would never do. Mm -hmm. So between the adult and the inner child, it seems like a lovey-dovey, lovey-dovey, really, oh, my inner child wants pizza, or I'm just journaling about my inner child. No, it's like real parenting. When you're parenting a really traumatized, upset foster kid that doesn't like you at times. Mm. And you have to set that relationship straight by kind of going, I totally hear you, but I'm very different than mom. Would mom ever try to quit smoking or try to show up for you or try to get to bed on time or stop eating a bag of Oreos and Netflix because you don't want to feel good? You know what I mean? Like, and it has to be like that for a while until the inner child kind of goes, yeah, I guess you're all right. Was there any, like, did you like well into your recovery journey were there like some, like, was there any like real pivotal aha that came much later on for you? Like with what? Your inner child or anything. Just was there anything that kind of, I don't know, took you a while to get or was like yeah, well, came <clears throat> up later on that you didn't realize was there? Right. The benefit of RRP in a group way is, is people are they're all trying to reparent their inner child as a team mm. and they're getting feedback with each other. So well, there wasn't really epiphany. Like we were doing activities. We were all trying to dialogue. We were all doing, we would sort of put a teddy bear in a chair and have um, empty chair conversations with our inner child. And the inner child would say, I don't believe you. You're not going to stop binge eating at night or whatever the issue was or something like that. So the epiphany, it, you know, it's just kind of where we were being helped on how to parent. And then um, there were some really big moments where the inner child became more and more real to us as we were kind of learning the things. It was like kind of almost like a DBT group and learning the skills. Mm -hmm. Learning like, whoa, <clears throat> my inner child was so up the other day that... I felt like my boss was mad at me. So I decided to work overtime and I didn't leave the building till 12 and I didn't even know what was going on. But the group is kind of, and the therapist is helping people become more and more aware of how the inner child runs us. That's the epiphany where people, people start to do it. They're like, holy shit, I'm in my inner child 24 seven. I'm a mess. You know what I mean? I'm dating unavailable people. I don't do my laundry. I hate myself. I rescue people all the time. Like all of that mess that happens to people. Mm -hmm. What do you say for people who, and I once was this way, like I just thought that this inner child shit was corny as hell. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not for everybody. It's like we're semantically. But it seems like it is though. It, it, to me, it seems like it's a crucial element for adult children. It is what, what I let people, for those that really have a hard time with it is, you know, it's just semantics, but it's also 
when people think it's corny or they think it's precious or something like that, I'm also wondering about if they grew up in an anti-love family mm. where a kid's needs or, or tenderness or attachment or cuddling was kind of gross in the family or shunned. Mm. So I'm wondering if I'm curious about why people have such a reaction to and it's not criticism. I get it. It's just like there are many clients. If I say, can you get a picture of yourself? They're like, yeah, but I just hate I hate that kid. Mm. And we're coming back to what I said earlier about that self-hate. Mm -hmm. So it can range from corniness to self-hate or whatever. And if you're not in tune with it, I just tell people to start with, okay, if you don't like inner child, inner adult, just flip it limbic system for the inner child, mm. your trauma brain, specifically your amygdala that remembers what it's like to be around a moody person like fucking Tim from accounting at work, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> And then your prefrontal cortex that goes offline when you're triggered. That's the inner adult. And we're trying to get that prefrontal cortex more online. The minute you get triggered, it's like the prefrontal cortex is like a 50K modem not being able to kick into the landline. Mm -hmm. You know, so then you lose your words with Tim from accounting mm -hmm. because he's got this edge to him. He's in a rush. He's, he's anxious or he just, you know, he's a little bit gruff about your TPS reports. Yeah. <laughs> and you just you kind of, you kind of become a babbling mess around him. Why? It's because your limbic system remembers what it was like to be around dad and now the limbic system is projecting the authority figure around Tim from accounting when Tim from accounting is just an asshole. You yeah, fuck Tim. He's just somebody that you have to deal with in the cube farm that is your job. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's helpful to couch it in that way of these two brain parts. Mm -hmm. And then, and then try to work your way into sort of like personifying it into an inner child who had that kind of like neurotic boy scout dad that was just like, you don't know your square knot yet. Just Jesus Christ. You know, like, <laughs> okay. Do you want to touch upon what is the next part? Intimate building. Yes. Intimate, or what is it called again? Reclaiming intimacy, which is actually the harder part of one, two, three of the harder part of the, of RRP. Um, reclaiming intimacy is that, you know, group therapy is really a badass experience in the way that group therapy is designed to increase the person's ability to do conflict, to increase the person's authenticity, mm -hmm. to increase the person's ability to take risk. Mm -hmm. So the intimacy piece is both with other people in our lives, specifically the group members, but also the intimacy with ourselves, with our inner child, setting limits. And that it's if people, when they hear this, they almost want to throw up in their mouth. But gradually, as the group becomes more of a cohesive unit and they become more of a supportive unit, and these groups are, I run a, well, I'm not taking clients now, but I'm trading clients. We have two types of groups. We have a six-month group, and then we have a long-term group. The six-month group is to just kind of introduce the person to the work, and they don't have to sign on to a long-term experience. And they do a genogram. They get to experience other people. They get a lot of psychoeducation about the family system. It's where we start everybody. I don't, I don't, I stopped putting people into the long-term group unless they had done a lot of work prior and you know what I mean? Like they had, maybe they had been an individual client of mine for three or four years, or they had done a lot yeah. of, a lot of, of trauma work prior mm -hmm. and they can handle that kind of intimacy. The longer term work is 
I don't really even introduce the intimacy work until like a year, a year and a half, because we have a group of trauma survivors that the abuse was around conflict. Mm -hmm. The abuse was around bringing things up. Mm -hmm. So we do a lot of the first part until the group is kind of ready to be able to handle um, that. And as the group leader, I'm encouraging, you know, I'm reminding them like down the road, you know, think about there might be someone in group right now that is triggering for you. Mm -hmm. And as we become a healthy, more of a healthy family system, we're going to be bringing that up. And, you know, it sounds crazy, but it is conflict work that made me become who I am today. Being able to bring something up and have actually had that be super messy or heated to be able to have a successful marriage mm -hmm. to be able. And I really think about like where when I, you know, and people were really in my group, they challenged me. I, I was a scrappy 19 year old, really feral kid who was really off. I was kind of preachy. I was bossy. I was, I think that that's kind of part of being young, but I really created a lot of distance with my group members by either taking care of them or being a little bit superior to them. Mm -hmm. And they call me out on it. You know, they, they were really, that would really trigger these people. I was also a mess. I'd also be like a half hour late to a lot of groups before I got sober. And I would miss people's check-ins or the, you know, I'm just, I'm busting in. But as a, as a neglected trauma survivor, I'm thinking no one notices because no one ever did. Mm -hmm. You see that disconnect and in intimacy? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, say you have a group of friends or whatever, and you got one friend that just kind of blasts in whenever and it pisses you off because you're like, like, we were waiting for you. Like we, mm -hmm. we let another table go ahead of us. And they're like, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And then come to find out that they just didn't even think that, you know, they were so anxious about being social to begin with. It wasn't yeah. a fuck you. Yeah. It was just their feralness. Yeah. That Absolutely. is intimacy. No, and, mm -hmm. and there's usually some one person in a group that pushes your button so much that they're the most important person in the group. Mm. I had a group member who really hated men and I really triggered her to the abuse of men in her family systems for some reason, whether I looked like them, I talked like them, whatever, didn't matter. And we had a cold war going on in that group for a good two and a half years Wow! until I showed up to one of her experientials wearing a suit because she wanted that in there. And that was the first time that she was like, oh, it's Patrick. And I can't believe he would do that. It was like the, where projection got lifted by mm -hmm. showing up for somebody. Wow. That's beautiful. No, this mm -hmm. is relational trauma. We heal through relationships. Absolutely. That's how, that's what got us here. Right. You know, like people being unreal, people being shitty to us, people not teaching us how to use our words, how to speak up around something, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, that's awesome. I could talk to you for fucking forever. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you shell your shit and I'll have to have you back on. Lovely. Um, what, what do I have going on? I just uh, right now, we're, I've got these three video ideas. Give it to me. Um, well, this has been on the back burner for so long, but I'm getting going on it this week as I've been wanting to do a video on religious trauma. Mm, I just interviewed a, somebody on that. Yeah, because I find that those who go through it is the way my mind works around it. There is just, if there wasn't fundamentalist religion going on, you would still have a very fucked up nuclear family. Yes. 
But then there's this religious community superimposed on top of it. And that's the mind F. Mm-hmm. Like, in other words, you got the narcissistic dad or mom who's like a Mormon or a fundamentalist bat or whatever, or, or, um, I don't, I'm not saying religion is bad as any way or any specific religion is bad, but when it becomes fundamental mm-hmm. that the family or the person lives by it to a point of extremism, um, that's where things are, but you know, like you're a traumatized kid and then, but then every day you have to go to your youth church group and make cold calls to the community about whether they're saved or not. Mm-hmm. That's an additional layer to the trauma, which is what I kind of want to focus the video on and how to recover from that. Then there's um, a video on some like 10 unknown issues that come up for childhood trauma survivors, like the delay of our emotions. You have a conversation with somebody at work and you agree to something. And then five hours later, your kid goes, fucking wait a minute. Why did I get sucked into that? You know what I mean? This delay of emotions, like for example. Mm-hmm. And then I recently I want to start a series on what happens to men and i've been looking at historical figures and i just did a video on john quincy adams because i'm a history fan and i'm thinking of doing a video on on john lennon and looking at his trauma related to how he was as a husband and wife in his first marriage and looking at like that because his story is just as horrific as anybody else's wow that's so cool yeah i guess i'm excited i'm just busy yeah, you are. Yeah, yeah. I had on um a recent well, not that recent, a couple of months ago, I got to interview the guy who his YouTube channel is growing up in Scientology. And I was like, oh, I'm, like wow. fucking obsessed with Scientology. So it was like everything. Wow. What's you his start name? work. His name is um Aaron Levin Smith. Okay. Yeah. So cool. yeah. And if but if you go to his if you go to his name, like AaronLevinsmith.com, it's like a website that Scientology like created like and like to hate on him because that's what they do they just like oh like, to slander you yeah oh my god yeah but he was yeah he's so it was fascinating i love cults yes give, give me anything dark <laughs> yeah i know well the fam- the toxic family is a cult you know what i mean yes. there's just alliances and there's all kinds even if you're just a single child you know what i mean even if it's a single mom there's still this idea of you know Praise me or you're my enemy. Absolutely. Get on board with the rules or you're fucked, you know? Mm. Well, thank yeah. you so much for your time. I'll include all your shit in the show notes and I would love to have you back. I would love that. Lovely chatting with you. Very cool. Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that could help you on your own journey. As always, I know that you did. And as always, seek help if you did not. Um, Thanks again to Patrick. I loved chatting with him. Um, Yeah, we'll definitely have him back on. I could talk to him for hours. Um, Go check out the show notes for all of his shit. It is five o'clock, y'all. Earlier, not midnight. That's one thing that I am trying to, and I've actually been doing a pretty good job. I need to get, um, I need to get to bed earlier and I need to get up earlier. So I have been, um, going to bed before midnight. I have been like staying up until like one or two. So I've been going to bed by midnight and I've been getting up by eight thirty. So that's it. I need, I need to get some like better routines and plan. Is that in plan in place? 
in place. Uh, I think that that will help a lot too. So that's one thing too that I'm going to be doing in the in the new community is I've set up a section. So I'm going to do this probably twice a week. I'm going to have like two tiers. And so this will be like in the like the higher tier. But I'm going to have uh, two groups a week that are called get shit done groups. And it'll probably be for two hours, maybe three. But um, I've been using this technique called the Pomodoro technique. No, not Pomodoro pasta. Um, But it's so basically I want this to be a group where we hop on Zoom and we are getting shit done. Like it's an accountability group to where we can get those tasks done that we've been like putting off or that we like feel anxiety with. And we can use this Pomodoro method, which is like 25 minutes on, five minutes off. Um, so we can get shit done. So the shit shows can get shit done. I wanted to share that, um, we had, I had 90,000 downloads for March, which was my largest month thus far. So thank you guys so much for listening and for your support. And please keep sharing the show because there's still a lot of fucking shit shows out there who have yet to, uh, to discover this. So yeah, I'm going to go get some wings. There's a food truck here. Uh, it's called KJ Wangs and Thangs. And I'm going to go get my get me some damn wangs. And I will see all you shit shows next week for another fucking amazing episode of an old chat. It's going to be super raw, super bono. So excited. If you want to hear it, it's going to be a great promise. Don't